The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're going to be discussing the doctor-patient relationship. Every week I try to come come on, or every other week when I come on the show, I try to share with you guys my personal experiences promoting free market healthcare, my observations of why it is so important that we have a vibrant and robust free market healthcare system and then why and why we should avoid a government controlled top down one size fits all socialized medicine type system because that type of system simply does not provide care this top down system has very few people at the top trying to understand what essentially amounts to an infinite amount of information and there's no way that they could possibly digest that information and present that information and those services to a worldwide patient base. But when you have a free market system, you have individual doctors out there constantly learning, constantly practicing their craft, we end up with the best healthcare in the world, meaning we have the most possible choices, we have the highest quality because competition out there forces us to to do better uh, by our patients, meaning less wait times in the waiting room, more face time with the actual doctor, less pain, smaller incisions, better outcomes. All of these things are pushed in a positive direction by a competitive free market. And when you have a one-size-fits-all government system, it sucks the soul out of doctors and uh, destroys uh, health care. And I have been watching now for almost 30 years, watching the healthcare system in the United States deteriorate. I've been watching the doctor-patient relationship collapse on so many different levels. And I kind of want to share some of that stuff uh, with you guys um, today. Uh, now, one of the, when you try to research the doctor-patient relationship, there's not a really simple answer there. Um, but one of the fundamental aspects of the relationship between a doctor and a patient has to be trust in the doctor and the belief that that doctor is acting in the patient's best interest. Patients when they're when they're visiting with their doctor are usually in a vulnerable situation, they're sick, they're ill, they're scared, they're not feeling well, they're stressed, and they have a lot of things coming at them and it's a doctor's job to manage those emotions, manage those feelings to be a teacher, to be able to provide information to those patients and to help them understand complex medical issues in a way that they can digest so that they, so that individuals can make decisions about their own body. And it's a really difficult process. And I'm here to tell you that I'm still learning. I mean, there are things I'm not very good at. I have never been very good at giving bad news to people. I'm a somewhat emotional person. Somewhat. <laughs> Anybody who knows you knows me will tell you I'm totally emotional in the sense that uh, nobody is ever wondering how I'm feeling because I wear my emotions on my sleeve. But to be able to give devastating information to somebody, uh, as in uh, you know somebody in your family just died or you know you have a serious illness or injury, it's not an easy thing to do, and it takes a real talent and a real skill. And 
we foster these things, at least we used to in medicine, trying to, to promote better doctors. And sadly, what has been happening over my 30 years of experience in medicine is that we have gone more and more towards this bureaucracy that is less and less empathetic towards people. It's more and more authoritarian in its behaviors and the way it treats both patients and doctors. And it, uh, it really has taken a lot of our freedom away from us. And I'm really amazed in this day and age when we are literally, we just had the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade decision, which uh, people who are proponents of abortion will tell you they just banned abortion. That is not true. What they did was take the issue of abortion and put it back to the states at where it belongs because things not enumerated in the Constitution are to be left up to the states to decide. And the whole concept is that we have these 50 incubators of democracy where different policies and procedures can be tried and things that work can be pursued and things that don't work can be eliminated and patient or patients, people have the ability to vote with their feet. And uh, we've really kind of lost the number one fundamental aspect of the doctor-patient relationship, which is trust. And let's start off by playing clip number one. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. So what we were just listening to is uh, a politician in the European Union uh, making a video uh, for that he posted on Twitter stunned that the that Pfizer pushed this vaccine, this new experimental mRNA vaccine, and they had never tested whether or not the vaccine was effective at preventing the transmission of COVID. Now, you'll know that on this show, I said numerous times, beginning way at the start, back in early 2020, I said that whether or not to take a new experimental vaccine is a risk-benefit analysis, meaning each individual needs to assess their own risk and decide how they want to proceed. And some people were afraid of the virus and elected to take the vaccine, being new and experimental with many unknowns. And other people were more afraid of the new experimental vaccine and wanted to take their chances with the COVID virus. Now, I would just pointed that out. So for all you fact checkers out there, all you medical boards and everybody who wants to come at me, I'm not spreading misinformation right now. I'm just saying what happened in my opinion. And as a doctor for 30 years, and, you know, I don't 
you know, I don't want to sit here and talk about myself in this way, but, you know, I graduated at the top of my med school and I have a very large practice. I've had a pretty successful career and I believe that I have earned the right to offer an opinion. My opinion was that everybody should make a decision on their own because that's what we do when we have a free market healthcare system. We have the ability to make our own decisions regarding our own body and our own health. And the doctor-patient relationship is set up to help patients make individual decisions about their well-being and make their own decisions. Our job as physicians is to gather information, to teach information, to present information to patients so that they can decide what they want to do. Now, we're living in a world where people that are reporting us to medical boards and threatening uh, persecution of of, uh, doctors are saying things like, my body, my choice, frustrated at the recent Supreme Court uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. So they, they feel that this is taking away a woman's autonomy to do what she wants to do with her body. But at the same time, these very same people are telling us that we have to take this new experimental vaccine. And if anybody asks questions about it, like, wait a second, people are having side effects with these new experimental vaccines and things like that. Those people need to be persecuted. And it just doesn't make any sense to be arguing, do I have control over my own body or don't I? I mean, you don't get to have it both ways. If you feel strongly that the right to abortion is your is your right and your choice. Now, again, I'm offering my opinion. I don't really see that as the same thing because when the woman chooses to do an abortion, there is another person involved. It's the baby. Now, I'm open to discussing when you know a morula or a clump of cells becomes a human being. I'm open to talking about that. Uh, and I'm open to talking about, you know, extenuating circumstances. Certainly when the life of the mother is involved, we got to talk about this. It's not that easy. And I can tell you as a physician, a lot of times we don't have choices between right and wrong. It's the choices between one risk and another risk, you know, one problem or another problem. It's not about right and wrong in medicine. And that's why medical decisions can be so difficult. Now, <clears throat> In the case of the vaccine, though, you're talking about your own body. Now, the people who are proponents of vaccine mandates wanted to make this argument that, well, when you're getting the vaccine, it's not about you. It's about protecting others. Now, we just heard yesterday, this is breaking news. It should be everywhere around the world. But, of course, most media outlets will not report it. But Pfizer, a Pfizer executive admitted that they did not test whether or not the vaccine would prevent transmission. And not to get off the focus of today's show, which is the doctor-patient relationship, I would like to play cut number two. David, let's get cut number two going. You're okay. You're not going to. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey, folks. Guess you heard this morning. I tested positive for COVID. And when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Dr. Fauci says he has COVID again. If you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID-19. And this morning, I learned, I I tested positive for COVID-19 as well. The three doses that you'll be prevented, not just from serious illness, but from 
getting this virus, this Omicron variant, and therefore giving it to others. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is in quarantine for seven days after testing positive to COVID. So I, I'm fully vaccinated. It gives me some comfort. Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, having received two doses of AstraZeneca, it's a very effective vaccine protection from symptomatic illness and therefore risk of transmission to others. There's a montage of so-called experts, right? We live in an age now where people like to label other people experts. They then like to have those experts make a statement. And then anybody who goes against an expert is guilty of spreading misinformation and they're to be censored and banned. And, you know, we're just living in this this dark age of censorship where information is just not freely spread anymore. It's I come and I do this show and I... <laughs> You know, candidly, I have my family members telling me to shut my pie hole, other doctors telling me to shut my pie hole. And and I have myself saying, dude, shut your pie hole. Like, I don't want to share my opinions in a lot of ways because we live in this cancel culture. Uh, But then I think to myself, what kind of world do I want to pass off onto my children? And if I'm not going to speak out about some of these things, then who will? And so I'm trying to be careful here. I'm offering my opinion so that when the medical boards come again and other, you know, uh, media outlets come again to try and attack me and discredit me and tell and claim that I'm spreading misinformation, I want to have on the record uh, something that proves <laughs> that I was right. And uh, I would say that on this show, I have always said, you know, listen, if any of you have ever played sports before, we all know we have the, the one player who, uh, if you're on a basketball team, they, they never make a free throw, right? They get up to that free throw line. They miss it every time. And then in a game, the other team knows that person can't shoot free throws. They follow that person on purpose. And he stands up to the free throw line, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I really hope he makes this shot, but he's probably not going to. And why do you think that? Well, because you making the observation that he misses the free throws all the time and that he's probably going to miss this one too. So when the when the pandemic first came around in 2020 and we started talking about coronavirus which I already knew about because we know about coronaviruses they've been around for a long time. It's been around so long that I studied coronavirus when I was in medical school so I understand things that I was taught about coronavirus like uh, that it's an influenza-like illness. It causes typically respiratory-type illnesses. Uh, that it is, uh, you know, these airborne-type uh, diseases are not prevented very well by masking and quarantining and things like that. I knew these things. And so did every other doctor out there. What was stunning was that I was getting attacked and punished and threatened for even bringing it up. And now here we are in 2022 and I'm playing you a montage of Dr. Fauci and Joe Biden and a whole slew of so-called experts telling us if you get the vaccine, you can't get the virus. And that is just patently false. Now, I don't see any of those people getting labeled known spreaders of misinformation. I don't see their accounts getting throttled. And the reason that I bring it up is because the fundamental basis of a doctor-patient relationship is trust. And I have just demonstrated to you right there that that trust has been violated in a way that's, uh, frankly, I don't know how we come back from this. 
I mean, we have to, you know, in any relationship, whether it's with your wife or your kids or whatever, you have tough situations, your parents, you know, oftentimes people say things that are hurtful. You wish you could take it back and you can't take it back. Sometimes things happen. You can't undo it, but you got to find a way to go forward. Well, that's where we're at with medicine. I mean, the doctor-patient relationship is a tough thing, and I've been working on it my entire career, and I, I've gotten better at it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have the greatest delivery of doctor-patient relationship of anybody out there, because I know I don't, but I'm trying as hard as I can to be a good doctor, and I fight my own demons to be the best doctor I can be. And let me give you some real-world examples. Now, I know I've shared on this show when I was in medical school, we used to have this class, Death and Dying, and I'm just going to tell you 30 years ago, medical school was a lot different than it was than it is today. I mean, medical school, we used to learn medicine, you know, and uh, there wasn't all this political bent to it. And now I know because I mentor a lot of people who go to medical schools, including mine, and they're just being propagandized all the time. They're being taught about electronic medical records. They're being taught about experts and best practices and all of these things that are really designed to centralize thinking, centralize opinions, centralize decision making and not have anybody get off the party line. And that is a very, very uh, dangerous thing. Now, it's very common we see in society now to have this appeal to authority. So people sort of get out of their, um, you know, they get out of having to make certain decisions or claims by claiming, well, I'm not an expert in that field. And we just saw it with uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who was uh, being questioned for her candidacy for the Supreme Court. Of course, she was confirmed, but she was classically asked uh, by one of the senators, uh, what is a woman? And what was her response? She said, well, I'm not a biologist, so I can't tell you what a woman is. Well, this sort of appeal to authority is ridiculous because just about everybody on the planet used to know what a woman is 10 years ago. It's only recently that it has become controversial or somehow I need an advanced degree to make this very obvious observation. Now, the other thing that I see all the time is that when people uh, are making statements or observations that don't go along with the company line, they're being canceled. And Dr. Peter McCullough, who is one of the world's top cardiologists on the planet, he's a great doctor. He's, uh, you know, Ivy League bona fides. He's one of the most published, if not the most published guy around. And he was, uh, he's been putting peer reviewed information and anecdotal information, which by the way is important. Now, anecdotal information is to be taken with a grain of salt, no matter who it's coming from, whether it's mine or somebody else's, but it's not zero information. It is information. And Dr. McCullough has been sharing all kinds of stuff about, uh, the COVID pandemic, the vaccine and all this kind of stuff has been proven to be right on just about every single thing he said. I'm not aware of anything he's, any statement he's made that has been inaccurate. And he was just banned off of Twitter. And uh, I mean, it's just it's gotten to the point now where you can see that you're not able to get the information that you get now or that, you you know, you're not able to get accurate information. If you go to Google something, there are going to be loads of fact checkers on there trying to influence the way you see certain facts. There are going to be biased um 
you know, biased sources are going to always be at the top of a Google search. So if you look up anything, taxation or COVID pandemic, any facts around it, you're going to get the left wing narrative about all of it. And to find anything right wing is going to be buried. And there's a skill and a tactic to how they just bury this kind of stuff. And they make it very difficult for us to research things that we don't already know about. And I know this because I go back to research things that I do already know about. And I just want to remind myself of the details and I find out that they've buried it. And it's happened to me on all kinds of things, whether it's the study of drugs or the study of the effectiveness of uh, policies like Medicaid and things like that, that they've gone and erased it. And of course, I've been saving for a couple of years now important videos of politicians making statements or so-called experts saying something that, uh, you know, that turns out to be embarrassing or false. And then when I go back to access it, of course, uh, the social media and big tech have memory hold this stuff. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now, if you haven't read 1984 and Brave New World, you need to read it. Because we're actually living it. This is a warning. It is happening in front of your very eyes. And my goal is to hopefully get people to see the obvious and to encourage you to vote like your life depends on it, because it does, that we still have a constitutional republic, which means the rule of law. Now, we're not really following the rules very well right now, but there's still, you know, it's always going to be a work in progress. And, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, the doctor-patient relationship from my personal experience. And I have told you about the situation when I was in medical school. We had this class, Death and Dying, that was part of our training. And Death and Dying was a discussion. It was a discussion about how to handle death. And so we would have people come up and share their testimony, people who were facing a terminal illness, and and they would say what they were thinking and feeling and hoping and wishing and all of their issues, their relationships to their family, to give us future doctors insight into what is in the psyche of somebody who's going through that. We had people up there that lost loved ones. There was actually a a guy in my medical class, uh, Dave Glick, whose wife had cancer, they found out about she was in the class they were in the class together husband and wife she got cancer and it was this roller coaster ride of her getting diagnosed getting treatment looked like everything was going well and then it took a turn for the worse and then she died and this all happened over the four years of medical school and i just remember thinking to myself how did he even how did he even get through medical school when i was in medical school it took every ounce of energy i had every second of my day was planned out i studied like like no i had you know my wife would take care of at bills i didn't do anything all i did was study and this guy uh you know just having the worst emotional crisis anybody could imagine uh throughout the entire time and anyway we had this very powerful um father who lost his 10-year-old son to cancer, and he shared the entire story of getting the diagnosis and going through the treatment and the conversations that he had with his 10-year-old son and that his son eventually died and how much he relied on his oncologist, who was there listening to this speech. And he was talking about um, the emotional support that he needed from this doctor, and sometimes he just needed 
the doctor to listen. You know, sometimes as a doctor, and we do this as parents and as husbands and things like that, a family member brings a problem to us and we want to solve it. And sometimes solving it is not the right answer. Sometimes just listening and affirming their feelings and affirming what they're going out, uh, what they're going through is worth listening to. And, and, um, anyway, he started saying that one of the things that happened is after his son passed, and I always get emotional when I think about this. I mean, I physically get to that point that when, when this father was talking about his son for two hours and he got to the end, the entire auditorium where people were sobbing, I mean, just loudly sobbing and crying. I mean, it was as hard a cry as maybe I've ever had. It was so bad uh, to listen to this poor, awful story about this guy losing his 10 year old son. And and um, he started having anxiety because about six months after his son died, he said, I started forgetting things about him, how he looked and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he sent a note to the doctor saying, I, I'm worried I'm forgetting my son. And when the father tells the story about his son, there's all this sort of weaving into it that his son was big on frogs. He always used to go out into the woods and get frogs and make little terrariums with frogs in them. And uh, this doctor went and found this tie that had a Norman Rockwell picture of a kid in overalls holding a frog with blonde hair. I mean, the kid almost kind of looked like what you imagine this man's son must have looked like. And he left him a note saying, I will never forget your son. And right now it's taking everything I have in me not to, to start sobbing and crying. It was such a powerful thing. And I remember thinking, man, that guy's a great doctor. I couldn't do it. I can barely sit here and listen to this story, let alone have somebody, you know, take the role of the doctor. Now, I've been in medicine 30 years and I've already had experiences like this and I I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to say is all the time. I had when I was a resident, I had a young girl um I got called about. I was on call at night and at the University of Miami is an enormous hospital. It's like a little city and you know, there's thousands of patients in there and and on the on the kids unit, they used to get meningococcemia, you know, they get meningitis from a bacteria and this bacteria commonly would cause clots and kids would get loose blood flow to fingers and arms and legs and hands and feet. And we would get called in the middle of the night. And if we saw this happening, we would typically take this lytic agent. It's an, it's called Ydase. It was basically an enzyme that was designed to break up cuts and we would sort of inject it into the area that looked like it was having difficulty getting blood flow. And uh, it was miserable. I hated it. You know, kids are, I, I'm not, God did not build me to take care of deathly ill kids. That is a, that is a skill. And the people who do it are truly blessed people. They're the, some of the most amazing people I've ever seen in my life to have that courage and that core strength to be able to go and, and deal with children that are facing life altering and life threatening illnesses. And, you know, in in my psyche, when I have to go there, I want to get in and get out because I'm not good at it. And uh, anyway, I got called about this girl who is probably 10 or 11. And uh, I go up to her room. She had her own, you know, the kids used to have their own pajamas. They didn't really wear the hospital stuff. And a lot of times their beds were made up like they'd be made at home. They tried to make their rooms a little bit more homey. And so I go in. Uh, to evaluate this girl and I lift up the sheets covering her legs and both of her legs are mummified from mid shin down to the feet. I mean, just all, we call that dry gangrene. They're basically mummified, looked like a mummy. And so you knew that she was going to lose both of her legs. And, uh, she was sitting there with a big white teddy bear, um, and her blanket. 
and uh, she looked at me and she said, am I, are my legs going to be okay? And I just, I'm again, I'm going to have to not talk about all these things. I'll break down on the show, but I just didn't know what to say. So I got into the bed next to her and I sat there and, and we watched TV and I just started, I started talking about what's on the TV and just anything to not talk about her legs. And I felt like that was the only thing that I could do at that moment. <clears throat> and when I left, <clears throat> I've thought about it all the time for the last 25, 30 years, however long ago that was. Was that the right thing to do? Did I do it the right way? Did I offer any comfort to her? <clears throat> I don't know the answers to these questions, but I ask these questions and I read about it and I try to be better at it. And this is part of the development of the doctor-patient relationship. Um, now, the doctor-patient relationship is complicated. We're getting ready to go to break, David. Is that what you're trying to say? David's giving me a hand signal here, and I'm not I'm not a veteran enough to the podcasting game to know what that means. So anyway, um, we're going to talk some more about the doctor-patient relationship. We're going to take a break right now. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our, our, our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And we've been talking about the doctor-patient relationship, and I want to pick up where I left left off there. The doctor-patient relationship is the bedrock of our healthcare system, and fostering a healthy doctor-patient relationship is critical in making proper medical decisions for patients and helping patients take control of their own health care. And the doctor-patient relationship is complicated. 
Uh, but fundamental to the doctor-patient relationship is trust. The patients have to trust the doctor. Now, patients, when they're seeing their doctor, are almost always not at their best. They're sick or injured or stressed or all of it. And so they, they, they are not on their best behavior. You know, they do things that they might not ordinarily do. Um, sometimes they take drugs and medicines that they shouldn't take. Uh, sometimes they engage in behaviors that are not in their own best interest. Uh, they, they, they'll do things that are counterproductive. And as a doctor, you have to inspire them that you have their best interest at heart and you have to help them make uh, good decisions in their life. And this is also very complicated because Something that's a good decision for me might not be a good decision for somebody else. You know, I see this with my children. You know, I, I wanted them to play sports. That was what I thought it was good for them. But they didn't want to play sports. They want to do theater and dance and singing and they want to do the arts and play cello and, and they're great at it. And what I learned was that all the skills that I wanted them to learn playing sports, hard work, goal setting, working with others, failure, how to pick yourself up and keep moving forward, they could get all of those values from other things. And so I had to have an open mind while I was dealing with my children and not just tell them you're going to do sports because I command it and I, it's in your own best interest. It was part of me having an open mind to learn. Well, being a doctor is, is similar. Uh, some of the things that I think are important, other people don't value that stuff. For me, just a simple one is Christianity. Um, I know when I went to medical school, I was a product of the the propaganda that we get uh, for many years uh, that, you know, religion uh, was often made up of fraudsters, uh, you know, these Jimmy Swaggart types. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember They're these televangelists that, you know, are cheating on their wives and making lots of money and and uh just really soured me on this and i also had this belief that religion was responsible for all of the wars that we have around the world or many of them and if we could just get religion everything would be great and then when i went to my medical school interview at st louis university where i ultimately went to medical school i was being interviewed by a pediatric surgeon who i remember saying to myself this guy's so old that he was actually already a surgeon on d day on june 6 1944 and uh, he was asking me, somehow we got on the topic of religion and I said what I thought, which he was like, well, that's an interesting perspective. He goes, but an alternative perspective is that um, belief in God and faith gives people strength to endure things they otherwise couldn't possibly endure. And he said, like when my son was killed in a fire, my grown son was killed in a fire. He, he said, I could never have gotten past it and moved forward and survived had I not had a faith and a, and my religion to give me strength and to give me peace on some level to go forward. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, why in the world did I let myself get sucked into a discussion of politics and religion in an interview? Well, thank goodness that this doctor did not hold it against me, and I ended up getting into medical school. And it was, of course, my fifth try. I know I've sent, said that story many times, but, you know, it's my fifth try, and I was thinking I was getting really close here, and I just blew it. 
So it really opened my, my my mind. I really respected this doctor, and I thought to myself, let me take a closer look at that. And so I started reading the Bible. And I've, the very first thing I noticed when I read the Bible was there's a lot of good information in here about how to conduct yourself uh, in every situation, um, how to save money, how to think about money, how to give charity, how to... Um, you know, just how to live. And I, and you know, people don't realize this, but Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest orators of all time. He gave these great speeches, the Gettysburg Address, of course, maybe the most famous speech of all time, less than 300 words. He wrote it, uh, you know, it was just a few minutes long, two minutes or something. And it was just so moving and powerful. And what Lincoln did was he would read the Bible and take the information in the Bible and just turn it into English speech. And as it turned out, his speeches were all amazing, and I always thought that was pretty genius on his part uh, to use the Bible as sort of the foundation to put his speeches together. Now, the other thing I kind of learned through the practice of medicine is that people suffer problems. I mean, I try to explain this to my kids all the time. People have issues out there that are that are not solvable in this lifetime. You know, you're paralyzed from the neck down. You know, I've seen that. It's uh, it it's, can't be fixed. And so how do you give meaning to this life and how do you give hope? Because one of the big things a doctor has to do is provide hope. Well, through religion and through faith. And I'm the kind of person, I've never been able to do something that I didn't believe in. Meaning, you know, so I've had vendors, for example, over the years come in and, and say, hey, you know, you can sell this thing to people and, and uh, you know, you can make money. And it's like, well, does it work? And it's like, ah, you know, they don't, it doesn't hurt. And I'm like, well, but does it help? I mean, I'm not going to do something to somebody if it's not helpful. And if I can't believe in it, I can't get behind it. I was, uh, <laughs> I, I know I get off tangent a lot, but I went to buy hyperbaric chambers recently. And so I was doing some research on hyperbaric chambers and the salesman came out and he kind of bait and switched me saying that the soft cover hyperbaric chambers worked like the hardcover uh, hyperbaric chambers. And so I built out a space in one of my buildings for six of them. And then I started doing more research and realized, wait a second, it, all of this data is related to at least two atmospheres of, of pressure in hyperbarics. And uh, the the soft shell um, hyperbaric chambers can't get to two atmospheres, only hard shell ones came. So I confronted him on it and he was kind of like, he admitted that he bait and switched me and I was really angry about it because the hard shell ones are like 10 times more expensive. So instead of getting six, I got one and he tried to tell me, well, you could just get away with it and bill it. And I'm like, but I don't want to get away with stuff. I'm not going to take money from people and do something to them if it doesn't work. And I was the same way about religion. And so I had to start growing my faith. And over the course of growing my faith, I came across a pastor who started um, giving me sort of the intellectual argument for Christianity and for, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values and Judeo-Christian teachings. And I started to believe in it because I'm a very, I'm a scientific type of mind. And like, I like data and I like to 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 learn things like that and so you start reading books like C.S. Lewis where they start giving you sort of more of the intellectual argument of why Christianity is real and the biggest most powerful thing is you have the empire of Rome that wants to do everything in their power to stamp out the existence and the teachings of Jesus Christ walking this earth and they were unable to do it 
And the people that were around Jesus that saw his life, the direct witnesses of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, many of them endured unimaginable acts of violence against them. And you ask yourself, what would compel somebody to endure that? Well, I imagine if you saw with your own eyes the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that would have a major impact on you. And within a couple hundred years, the the religion of Christianity is the religion of Rome that wanted to do everything in its power to stamp out the teachings of Jesus Christ. And St. Peter's Basilica and the Vatican sit right there in the heart of Rome. I mean, if that is not direct evidence of the you know, what I believe to be the factual nature of Jesus Christ and, and, you know, the fact that our real eternity comes after this life and that it is something to be, uh, to look forward to. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not done with my time here, but it has totally changed my perspective about what's in the future. And so it has helped me care for my patients because the one thing I do know just from my experience of teaching patients is that you just have to have hope. And anything you can do to provide hope is healing. Now, I don't know if that's a rule. I I didn't, you know, I didn't read on the, you know, from the AMA website, not that I would take anything they would ever write at, uh, at face value, but these are just the things that I learned through the practice of medicine. And I'm good at this because I do it. You know, I have people ask me all the time, what do you consider an authoritative source? And I'm, I'm saying, I say to people at this time, I don't consider anything an authoritative source. All sources have information in there. Some I agree with, some I disagree with because I've been doing this for a long time and I see it with my own eyes and I have opinions about things. And that's why I know to not just take it face value uh, all these clowns that we heard at the beginning of the show saying, take the vaccine, you can't possibly get it. And then as the vaccine doesn't work, they're like, well, you know, we changed our mind. And then it's like, but I'm supposed to listen to you about everything else going forward. When you just told me on one of the most critical thing that <laughs> it turned out not to be true. And I'm going to tell you there's more coming out. I'm gathering. I know the, the long knives are out for me and others. Uh, and the only reason I even live today is because I'm still small and relatively unimportant. Uh, but if I were to ever become influential, they'd be after me. And we're going to find out that a lot of these, that there are some issues going on with the things that they have had us do. And we're also becoming aware. And of course, I'm being very vague and cryptic right now because I don't want any medical boards to come in and say, you said misinformation or whatever. Now, you think what I'm saying is hyperbolic. Um, Gavin Newsom just signed a bill <laughs> that said doctors in California saying anything that they don't like about COVID is going to be uh, risking their license and discipline. Now, that is the most chilling thing that I have ever seen in my life. And I just cannot believe that happened in my lifetime. If you'd have told me when I was in medical school that there would be a time when a governor of a, of a state in the United States of America was going to pass a law saying that doctors were going to be persecuted if they offered their opinion about a medical situation, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no way that will happen in these United States of America. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is happening. He just signed it into law. And this none of this stuff is going to stop unless you guys get involved. 
unless you guys vote, unless you go to your school board meetings, unless you control what your patient, what your what your children are learning, <clears throat> this is going to continue. <clears throat> I have a video. And I was going to play it today, but I decided not to because it doesn't work very well on a podcast. But there, there's a speaker at the University of Minnesota Medical School who's pro-life. They get up to give the speech, and I don't know what the number is, but a significant number, maybe even half or more, of the medical students got out and walked out on this person. Like, these are supposed to be the educated people of the world uh, that are so closed-minded, they can't even offer courtesy to somebody who's offering an opposing point of view. And this is on the heels of them being wrong about everything, about something so major in the last two years, it defies the belief. You know, I remember I was playing rugby one time. And, uh, you know, in rugby, you pass the ball. If you catch the ball and you knock it forward, it's called a knock-on. Like, you can't do that. And you turn the ball over to the other team. And we were playing in a big game, and my teammates were knocking the ball on. They kept knocking it on. And I was getting mad because it was like, in my opinion, uh, I, it was a lack of concentration. And, you know, I just, you know, the one person, too many did it. You know, the fifth person knocked it on. And I screamed out. I was like, no more knock-ons, yelling at my teammates as if I'm the superior one. And then guess what happened the next time I got past the ball? I knocked it on. And it was a moment of humility. <laughs> I mean, here I am yelling at my teammates, don't knock it on, and then I knock it on next. And guess what I did next? I shut my mouth. You know why? Because I have a sense of of reality. I have a sense of introspection. I have an idea of where I fit in this world. And I learn from my mistakes. Well, it doesn't seem like our leaders these days are able to do that. They don't have the capacity for it. And that argues for getting away from a one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-controlled healthcare system to a free market system where you can leave one doctor and go to another. I get I get texts every day from patients wanting to know where can I go to the pediatrician where I don't have to play this mask game. And, I mean, the CDC, I have it right here. The CDC's recommendations, you don't need a mask. It's the CDC recommendations. But yet, every time I go to a hospital, I have to wear a mask on. And the reason for that is money. Because we all, you know, we talk about it all the time that with our third party payer system and with the government control of healthcare through Medicare and Medicaid, the government has a great ability to transfer wealth under the guise of the COVID pandemic. So they keep playing this COVID scam, even though the data is showing that these new variants are causing more of an influenza like illness that I'm not going to say carries no risk, but the risk is more like a traditional flu. So people get sick, but they're not dying. The original strains were more of an inflammatory problem with clots and pulmonary emboli and, and things like that, and myocarditis stuff. That Those variants, that's not happening as much anymore. Now it's just a typical respiratory type illness, and it's amenable to our various treatments. Um, the The way that the powers that be are telling us things that turn out to be untrue in very short periods of time. And then people like me come out and point out, I just played a montage. They said uh, that if you get the vaccine, you can't transmit it and you can't get it. But then in a very short time, we found out that you can. And now I've played uh, Dr. Walensky, who's the uh, the um, 
head of uh, Medicare, HHS, uh, said, you know, I've played that that video a ton of her saying what the vaccines can no longer do is prevent transmission. Well, I thought this was me getting vaccinated because I have to protect the other person. And if I take the vaccine and you're telling me that it can't prevent transmission, then isn't it really just about what I put in my own body, my body, my choice, and I choose to risk getting the virus rather than this new experimental vaccine? I mean, I'm not following their logic at all. And when you point out logic that they can't stand, then they censor you and they punish you and they persecute you and they report you to the board and they threaten your medical license and they deplatform you. And it's very dangerous because we know that there's a ton of censorship going on out there. And even with all that stuff, we're still getting this information out. Just imagine what it would be like if we had the free exchange of ideas right now. I just had a patient. I had I had the call of the century recently where I just had a ton of patients come in on a Sunday. I had to do three hip fractures back to back to back on a Sunday. And it's not that easy on a weekend to get all these cases going. They're on a shoestring staff, and it, it can be hard to get people in there. And so a lot of times things that I would do really quickly on a regular day on the weekend could take all day and into the night. So I was come on, let's get these cases set up. Let's just do it back to back to back. Let's bang them out. And then all of a sudden, one of them's like, oh, she tested positive for COVID. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, here we go with the whole, you know, we're going to do the hazmat suits and they got to call in additional staff and all these crazy things that I disagree with my opinion based on the data and CDC recommendations, which I believe suggest everything I think is now the appropriate thing to think. Um I was like, can we get this case done? So we do the case. Lady comes down. She's not sick at all. Not sick at all. She has a, a broken thigh bone, but she's not ill. She's no soreness, uh, no sore throat, no cough, no respiratory systems whatsoever. She's just been tested positive for COVID. And she's, you know, asking questions about her surgery and all that. So we do her surgery and we go in to see her the next day and she's trying to get on the commode and she just started crying. Get me out of here. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? And she's like, they won't bring me my medicine. They won't help me get out of bed. And they're, you know, basically treating me like a leper. And I'm just like, this is the erosion of the doctor-patient relationship. We're not putting the patient's needs above our own needs. And that is, I just was reading, even the AMA says that. Uh, but this is, this is craziness that we're not putting the patient's needs first and we're not looking out for them. This is basic stuff, man. Um, and it's really, really frustrating me. Now, I told you guys last week, I just had a patient that had to fly in from another state to get a hip replacement. Now, he has a diagnosis of ALS. Now, he couldn't even get that diagnosis in his state. He heard about me through through mutual people. And he had heard, he called me and just said, hey, I got your number from a mutual person. I heard you're a good doctor. I'm having all of these problems, arthritis in my neck. I got a problem with my hip and I'll got a little weakness and I'm, I'm, I'm worried what's going on. And I was just like, well, just go to your doctor and, you know, get this and that. And he, he's like, I can't. And I'm like, they, what do you mean you can't? I can't even understand. It's like, no, they won't make an appointment. When they do, they won't do the tests I need. They won't give me information. It was very bizarre. And it, it, this went on for a, quite a, some time. And I finally was like, you know, if you can make your way out to Atlanta, I'll do all this. Not even orthopedics. I mean, he had medical issues and neuro, neurological issues and stuff like that. So I organize everything just because that's what I do. I'm a doctor. It's 
you know, I, I was talking to my wife about it the other day. It's like, why are you doing it? It's like, well, because I can and because God put this person in front of me and it's what I need to do. I don't want to do it. You know, it's going to cost me money, literally. So anyway, he flies out and guess what the diagnosis is? It's ALS, Luke Eric's disease. Well, I already told you guys I'm terrible at that. I don't want to have to tell this guy he's got ALS. He's a young man. He's got three small kids, a wife. It was devastating. And so I did. And I used the tools that I had, which are not many, to just be there and to let them cry and to say, listen, you're not dying today. You know, you still have a life. You still have kids. Let's, let's get you, you know, let's get you moving in the right direction. You know, nobody knows what they're, you know, and then I, and then the other little, voice in my head is like, don't, don't tell them too much, you know, don't start, don't start going crazy, you know, solving the problem. Because at this moment, what he just needs to do is cry. He needs to process. He needs to, he needs to vent. And then my job is to give him some hope, but I don't want to start lecturing either. And I, I don't know what the right thing to do is. I'm trying to do what I thought was right. So anyway, amongst his other problems, he also has some arthritis in his neck. We gave him some injections for that. It seemed to help a lot. And he had an arthritic left hip. And I was like, we should do a hip replacement. And I'm like, but you can get a hip replacement done back in your state. I mean, every state has doctors that do that stuff. And, you know, a good doctor, you know, that's I'm not Picasso. No surgeon is. Surgeons are master carpenters, meaning you have to have a certain level of competency. But once you get to there, that's good. And lots of people have that. So I was like, Let's just get you back to your state and then go find a guy. So he goes back to his state and uh, he goes and gets an appointment to see the top person, you know, the equivalent of the Mayo Clinic joint surgeon or whatever. You know, we all we all know what it's like, right? I went to I went to Mayo Clinic. It's like you think you're getting the top of the top and you're really not. I'm telling you this stuff. It's inside baseball. They're not. They're academic minded. Uh, they don't really have a lot of critical thinking. Of course, I'm painting with broad brushes right now, but I'm just saying a lot of your, in my opinion, better doctors are the ones out in the community who are free from that control of that bureaucracy. So, and this is going to support my point. So he goes and he sees this doctor and he, he's texting me. He's like, the doctor's telling me there's nothing wrong with my hip. And I'm, I remember I was doing something. I was busy and I'm trying to look at that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I text him, what are you talking about? Did you show him the x-ray? And he's like, no, we're looking at the x-ray. And he says, he said, the doctor said to me that I have people who are running triathlons with hips that look like that. And so I stopped what I was doing. I went to my computer and I pulled up the x-rays that we had taken of his hip. And I used annotation on there to show, see on your good hip, you see how your joint space is the same all the way around and you know, this is what a normal joint looks like. And I said, look at this one. You see how it's bone on bone right here. I'm doing this on the phone, texting him. And he's like, yeah, I totally see that. And I'm like, you know, I said, I don't know what to say. The guy you're seeing right now, he can see it too. I just think he doesn't want to take care of you because you have ALS and you're going to be a problem. And doctors are human beings too. And doctors don't want to take on a tough patient like that when especially if you're a joint surgeon and you work at the Mayo Clinic or any of these special institutions, your waiting room is full of people with regular joints, easy joints, ones where I'll do it, they'll get better, they'll go away, I'll never have to talk to them again. But then somebody like this with ALS, they're going to be tough. They got complicated issues, and boy, was it tough. It was maybe one of the hardest hip replacements I ever did in my life because you can't use paralytic agents, so it's tight in there. He was 
spastic. You know, his muscles were a bit spastic. And I mean, it was a battle to get it done. But he had to fly out from his state to here to have me do a surgery. I took care of business. While he was in the hospital, same thing happened as happened with the lady I did with the femur fracture. He's like different hospital too. It's not any particular hospital. This is the way the bureaucracy works. He looked at me and he was like, get me out of here. They won't give me my medicine. They won't help me. They won't take care of me. They won't do anything. And I was just like, all right, well, let's get you out of here. So I discharged him. So I did the surgery. And then the very same day, I discharged him. He's got ALS. And he went to uh, he went to a motel that was near the hospital. So I got up in the morning on Saturday, and I went over with a friend of mine, and we did his physical therapy. We got him out of bed. His wife was there. We walked him around. You know, I answered questions, got him back in his bed, did all the stuff that you would normally do in a hospital when I was young. Uh, but I did it. Uh, and listen, I'm not, I'm not a saint. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm not trying to say, like, I'm this special person. But I was born to be a doctor. There's no question about that. And I want to do it. I want to help him. I get... I personally get gratification from helping people like that. Put him back in bed. I came back the next day and I got him up again. We went through everything and he was good. And so it was like he flew home that day or, or the next day. So my point I'm trying to make is as we see more and more government penetration and control of our healthcare system, we see an erosion of the doctor patient relationship to the point where people cannot get they're what I would consider to be their normal medical care. And they're having to leave states and come here and, and, and get it from people like me. And I'm not the only one. There are a lot of doctors out there who are trying to get out from under this oppressive system. But I got more. I mean, I got to one patient. I got a whole list of other anecdotal stories of, of things that are happening to try and explain to you guys the problem. And I will share more of them uh, as we have future shows. But the doctor-patient relationship, it's critical. Preserving it is critical. The doctor-patient relationship is not a priority for a one-size-fits-all, government-run, top-down, socialized medicine system. It's a free market system. And I just one last thing before we close the show. I was listening to something on Twitter where some guy was talking about how uh, cancer treatment uh, is fraudulent, and I don't know the truth of it or not, and that, you know, basically the doctors are pocketing money by offering cancer treatment that 97% doesn't work. And my argument, you know, and so I guess the thing is like doctors shouldn't be able to make money. That's stupid. You can't control the character of people. The only thing that can be controlled is a patient's ability to choose the doctor that they see. And through a competitive marketplace and doctors engaging in good behavior to earn patients, that's what keeps people on the straight and narrow. And that what that's what makes sure that all of us as, as patients get the care that we need and the care that we deserve. I'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the show. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. We'll catch you next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.